Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Welcome back to the Summer of Satan. It is the Summer of Satan. We're talking satanic panic here. My name is Gavriel Hakoen. I'm here with my BFF and co-host, cult expert, cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today, Sadie? I am doing fantastic. I'm really excited to get into this episode because on the surface, it may not seem like the most satanic panic related episode. It's a it's an episode about debunking another one of Jack Chick's sources, who was a grifter very much along the lines of John Todd. But his story was that he was a former Catholic priest. And now he's going to tell us all how the Catholic Church is a tool of Satan. Everything's a tool of Satan, unless you are a specific <laughs> vein of fundamentalist or Baptist or, or a Bible-believing Christian. In America, all other countries are compromised pretty much. And all other religions and denominations and even (laughs) sub-denominations of Christianity. Um, This is the first part of a two-part episode. Alberto Rivera made so many wild claims that we are going to take two episodes to debunk his claims. Yeah, like I remember John Todd had like one comic that was based off of his that we read yeah. we're just like okay well now and that was like our gateway into john todd and then we listened to a bunch of his species species we gave a life story and kind of just like because he kind of said the same thing but alberto rivera has like it, we, we found the alberto comic book series that jack chick and chick publications put out it was illustrated by fred carter um and it like featured tim and jim the beefy boys for jesus as characters in the comic there's like six or seven comics in this series of comics and they're all just chock full of 
claims of this and that and the other thing mixed with like things the Catholic Church is doing, plus Alberto's supposed life story, plus other things. Yeah, and he makes so many fantastic, highly specific claims that it gives us a ton to debunk and a ton of just little granular things that we can look up to con to verify or disprove his story. And there's a lot of people that have also done that in the past because this was kind of like a big thing within that vein of, of Christianity was, do you believe Alberto or do you not? And that was kind of a debate that people yeah. were having. But I have done a couple, there are a couple things in here that are my original research uh, that nobody appears to have done on the internet before. Yeah, and- This episode was so fantastic because this two-part episode, this is the, I think, the broadest array of things I have had to look up for an episode. But also the information, most of the information that we needed to, uh, the claims were so specific that they're easy to investigate, most of them. And also the the- broadness of the of what you're talking about gives us it's like going into an orchard and picking all the apples that you want and they're all looking very juicy is kind of how i would describe doing the the research for this episode so we had a lot of fun but before we let's get right into yeah, it let's do it let's let's get into this but before we get into that the leaving eden podcast is the podcast about my bff and co-host sadie carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental baptist cult the cult in which she was raised so we talk about this cult we talk about other cults we talk about religion we talk about fundamentalism we talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole and it is our goal to promote freedom of mind freedom of thought and freedom of religion so if you like our show if you're a fan of our show that you can do some things to support us number one you can join our patreon where you get an extended and uncensored version of most of our episodes last week's episode about bob larson and his rock book i think there was close to 40 or 45 minutes of bonus content on the patreon just for that episode alone so you'll want to check that out that was a lot of fun to do you can join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Both are great places to discuss the show and your own personal experiences with other listeners, talk about fundamentalism, share memes, share just or just like shoot shit about religion. It's a fun, it's it's a fun place, good hang. We've got a really positive community. I love our community. You can also check out our merch selection. It is the Summer of Satan, and you can get the Summer of Satan specific Leaving Eden podcast merch, the the new design where it's got the little uh an apple with the devil horns, and I use the death metal font on that. So that was fun to make. And thank you so much for making that. I asked you for cute but evil, and this is probably my favorite merch that you've ever made. I'm really excited for the ones that we come out with going forward because I want to do more merch designs. Um, but all of the merch designs that you see on the shop are designed by mostly me with input with, from Sadie. Is how, how I did our pride shirt this year, though. That was me. That was Sadie's idea, and it was awesome. And we had some people order it. So, um, and and that was cool because all the the proceeds from pride themed merch go to the lg go to uh support lgbtq charities and causes um speaking of patrons though i just need to thank our uh, faith promise missions and i gave it all to your patrons so we have three i gave it all to your patrons we have kathleen moncrief and melissa mosley and also we have on behalf of his wonderful deconstructed wife 
Madeline Antrim, we have Todd Dale. So thank you to everyone who supports us at the I Gave It All tier level. You guys are amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. And our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, your names are Alex P., Alicia Guild, Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Ashley Docs Tater, Brooke Tully, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen the Musical, Dora J., Enchanted Fairy, Esther M., Hannah Ross, Hope, Norum, Horton, Here's a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Henwood, Kate Terwee, Kitty Kate, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Lita, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Marsha Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, The Loch Ness, Tiffany Enderby, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Those are our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Thank you guys so much for contributing to our Patreon, and thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Yeah, big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to everyone who supports our podcast in different ways, especially through sharing us on social media, talking about us on the fundies, whatever fundy snark internet forum you happen to be a part of, putting us in your Instagram stories and mentioning us to friends. All of you help grow this thing that we're building as well. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we'll mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid any graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling. And we do our best to give the audience a heads up before going into detail on any of those topics. This episode in particular will mention many of those topics. I don't believe that we're going to go into any additional detail. Is there anything that comes to mind that we're planning on talking about? No. I mean, there's like some for next, because uh, we wrote this episode in like both of the parts together. So it's kind of hard for me to separate what goes in this week's episode and what goes mm -hmm. in next week's episode. The only thing that I'm thinking about is that there's like some Holocaust stuff in next week's episode, I think. Yeah, um, that will be in part two. That will be in part two. That is that is more graphic. Um, there is a just a very brief mention of sexual assault in part one, but it's that's literally all it is. So just a, a very quick mention. So I think we're probably okay on that. I do want to recognize, however, anytime we talk about the Catholic Church, I think it's necessary to give recognition to the crimes against humanity committed by the church, particularly in residential schools. That's not the topic of our discussion today. So if that's a trigger for anybody, we're not going to be going into it in detail on this particular episode. I did say in an earlier episode that uh, this month that the church hasn't poisoned anyone in the last 50 years. Unfortunately, I learned that I may be incorrect on that. Um, someone informed me that the residential schools were known to force indigenous children to drink milk, although many of them were lactose intolerant, which made some people very ill. So I appreciate that correction, although it makes me sick to hear of yet more abuses. Uh, I wanted to clarify that correction as well as let people know 
that this episode is not at all intended to be the church has never done any crimes at all. Uh, this episode is the church has not done these particular crimes because this particular person is a liar and we can prove it. This episode is also in no way meant to be a defense of Catholic theology and doctrine and tradition as like this is correct or this is what you should believe. We are going to clarify Catholic teaching on some points because we're trying to show how it has been misrepresented on purpose in order for Jack Chick and Alberto Rivera to use their misrepresentation of Catholic teachings for their own good. So I wanted to clarify my intentions with that at the start for both as a trigger warning and as a, just a statement of intention. But let's go on to the, the these claims. So Alberto Rivera uh, came to Jack Chick very much in the same way that a guy like John Todd would. He he came to Jack Chick and said, "I have a story about being a former, be, being a priest, being a, a part of the the Catholic Church, and these are the things that were going on." And Jack Chick basically used the stories that Alberto Rivera told him to publish books published comic books that were intended for children and young adults in order to feed them anti-Catholic propaganda. So were you reading these comics when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. I was not only reading these full-size comic books like Alberto, Double Cross, The Four Horsemen, I was also reading Jack Chick's smaller, like the Chick tracts that deal with Catholicism that are also partially based in Alberto's claims. You thought, okay, this is right. Sure. Um, we're, we're going to get into Alberto's claim of having been a trained spy to infiltrate fundamentalist churches, but I was looking around our church wondering who the spy was. That's wild. I promise I am going to get to what I think that does to people and why I think Jack Chick would want people to think that way. So let's get into... Um I want to do. Maybe yeah, we like need a, to tell his story first. Do you want me to do like a general overview of what Alberto claims the Catholic Church is trying to do before that, or do we want yeah. to tell? Okay. Um, so, what are his main claims? So, Alberto's main claims, and and Sadie and I both read these comics. They're all available for all of you to read on uh, the Wayback Machine. If you want to go there, we'll include a link to where you can get them. But you can, uh, I think, you just have to put your email in, and you and you can read them for free. But Alberto's main claims about what the Catholic Church is doing that he says that he was a priest, he was a, a trained spy to infiltrate churches like protestant churches and baptist churches on behalf of the catholic church and basically he says that the vatican serves satan and that their strategy is to be fake christianity in order to keep people from actually following jesus the vatican has a plot to bring about one world government and one world religion this plot hinges its success hinges on Vatican having control over the holy city of Jerusalem. Pretty much every single evil plot over the past thousand years or more, basically from the Holocaust to the rise of communism to the Crusades, has been a Catholic Inquisition because the Spanish Inquisition never actually ended or whatever. Basically, the Vatican is playing the long game in order to achieve their goal. And finally, and most crucially, the last thing standing between the Vatican and their goals to get world domination is 
good Bible-believing Christians in the United States, and so that is where they are focusing their their targets now. And by now, I mean in like 1980, which is when Alberto was like telling the story to Jack Chick, and Jack Chick was putting out these comics. Yes, uh, Alberto really rose to some level of prominence with these stories around 1980. So Alberto claims that he was a Jesuit priest. And because of who and what he claims Jesuits are, that's why he was privy to all of this information about the secret plot to take over the world. So I want to start with a quick, quick explainer of what, what are Jesuits, who are Jesuits. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. The sacraments are seen as channels by which the saving grace of God reaches a human person. They're visible signs of the invisible grace of God. No one sacrament is the exclusive manner by which a person is able to receive God's grace. It's not like, oh, you got to get three out of the seven to go to heaven, or you got to get five out of seven. It's not a got to catch them all situation. <laughs> Lots of devoted Catholics end up getting four or five or six, receiving four or five or six of these sacraments during their lives, but it's actually impossible to get all seven because two of them are exclusive of each other. The seven sacraments are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, confession, marriage, extreme unction, uh, last rites is what extreme unction used to be called, and now it's called prayers for the sick, and holy orders. Holy orders is often misinterpreted to mean anybody who participates in religious life. So a monk, a nun, a local priest, a bishop, an archbishop, a cardinal, a pope. But holy orders actually only refers to men who are ordained to either be a bishop, priest, or deacon. I have probably made that mistake on this podcast before. So joining religious life is not a sacrament. Holy orders is a sacrament. So becoming ordained as a priest, a deacon, or a bishop, and that is only open to men. Y'all can just fill in my facial expressions. So religious life is monks, nuns, religious brothers, religious sisters, the people that you might see doing charity work, doing mission work, doing evangelization. They're the people that you see in movies, um, nuns with a very particular style of dress and maybe a white headdress on, or monks that perhaps have a brown robe that is tied with a belt. These people have joined one of many, many religious orders within the Catholic Church. A religious order is a group of people who all take vows to live by certain guidelines. Most commonly, they live in the same place, they are financed by the church or by donors, and they are all working on the same type of mission. It's almost kind of like how a fraternity or a sorority might have a particular charity that they support. So you've heard of religious schools that are all staffed by monks or all staffed by nuns or all staffed by priests, right? Yes. Okay, that's what that's one type of mission that a religious order might do. Another religious order might, oh, our we are this particular order and our mission is we run an orphanage in this town. Another religious order might have their mission be charity for the poor or feeding the poor, and that's what we do all day, every day. We wake up, we feed the poor, we say some prayers, we go to sleep. So it it is intended to be an avenue for a person to live a life of service to the church to the extent that they do not have a job out in the world. They get to live in full-time service to the church and to whatever their mission of their religious order is. 
And if you have been listening to this podcast for long, you probably <laughs> feel the same as I do. Like, wow, a life of service. That sounds awesome. But man, this is ringing every alarm bell that I have. Because <laughs> you just see like, oh, no that could be potentially so abusive, that could be potentially so so cult-like or toxic, but also like, wow, the idea of living your whole life to serve other people sounds great. So some orders might be devoted to prayer, and that's where you're going to see people in religious life that don't leave a convent or don't leave the monastery, and they all pray together multiple times per day at set times, and then they devote time to prayer outside those set times as well. And their whole job is to pray their whole life. So the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, are a historic religious order founded by Ignatius of Loyola in Spain in 1540. The members of the Jesuits are not monks. They are ordained as priests and they live in this order of religious life. They don't often get assigned by the church to be the priest at a certain church, like the pastor at a certain church. Instead, they get assignments of where to go, where to minister by the Jesuit hierarchy. The main interests of the Jesuits are arts, education, philosophy. They are often seen as the intellectual arm of the Catholic Church. This is due to one of their founding philosophies, which is find God in everything. So find God in art, find God in music, find God in philosophy and in education. And this is why the Jesuits have a reputation for often running institutions of higher education, like high schools or colleges, universities. They also have their fingers in a lot of different pies. And so people see them. Right. Yeah. Which has kind of been an issue for them as we are going to discuss. The Jesuits have been plagued with conspiracy theories pretty much since their inception. The name that was chosen for the society, the Society of Jesus, was very unpopular in 1540 in Spain. People thought it was blasphemous to include Jesus in the name of the organization. There were many documents, which are now considered to be forgeries, that purported to show Jesuit plans to use their education, to use their knowledge to rise to positions of power. Well, get yourself to be the confessor to the king, and then you have power because you know all the king's sins. You know, get yourself to a high place in society. We will get in depth into some of the, those conspiracy theories later, but this is both the name and the perceived vying for power were the things about the Jesuits that drew negative attention early on. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that Pope Francis is a Jesuit and that he is the first ever Jesuit Pope. That's correct. Jesuits take an oath to be loyal only to the Pope. So this is a little bit of a catch-22 issue because it kind of means that Pope Francis is his own boss right now. So according to Alberto's comic and according to these conspiracy theories, basically the Jesuits, depending on which way you want to look at it, the Jesuits are either the secret faction above the that's like pulling the the strings of the church, or they're a they're like the KGB that's working for the church to infiltrate everybody. De depending on where in Alberto's story you are, that kind of flips around. Sometimes it's all just its kind of own spider web. So there isn't a top religious order in the Catholic Church. Each order has leaders and each order has their own hierarchy and then the people who are in holy orders are most commonly under the authority of the bishop in whatever diocese they operate in 
So if you are a nun who lives in a convent in Minneapolis and you run a Catholic school there, you're, you know, you report to the mother superior and the mother superior reports to whoever is the bishop of Minneapolis. And then that bishop reports to an archbishop and to a cardinal and to the pope. And that's how the, the hierarchy works. The Jesuits are one of the, are the largest religious order in the Catholic Church, but they're not in charge of the other religious orders. That's BS. That's not how it works. This comic says that there are about 102,000 Jesuits. I did some looking, and I think we're starting off strong with a really bad claim. In 1965, the numbers were reported as 36,038 members of the Society of Jesus. And Jesus. the number has been Jesus. <laughs> And the number has been reported to be in decline since then. In 2022, the society had 14,439 members. So either Alberta was lying about there being 102,000 Jesuits in the 1980s, or he knows something that we don't know. So let's get into Alberto Rivera's story, like his own autobiography as he tells it. So we're starting with Alberto. It is the first comic in the Alberto series, and the story is told in a series of flashbacks. So we're going to really do our best to keep everything in order and understandable as far as his life story. I just want to point out that the way that this comic is told is Alberto goes to Tim and Jim, the beefy boys for Jesus, and is like telling his life story to them. And that's the way that this, like, it's weird for me to be like, oh, this is definitely a true comic. When you have like this real, this supposedly real character in the comic telling his story to two fictional characters in the comp like i'm like what is going on like i wrote my autobiography and it says that i'm friends with spider-man like not toby right. mcguire or whoever or tom hall or whoever's playing so i'm friends with like actually spider-man no like spider-man <laughs> <laughs> peter parker so there is yeah that is a a very confusing literary device being used by jack chick i like i said we're gonna do our best alberto opens in spain in 1942. Seven-year-old Alberto is being led into a Jesuit seminary where he will start his training to be a priest. So seven-year-old Alberto is being led into seminary at a Jesuit cemetery where he is going to start his training to eventually be a priest. I do want to note that's not as inaccurate as it sounds. Um, I've personally known priests who entered seminary at 13 or 14 years old. Seven is a stretch and not something that I think is happening in 2023. But in 1942, this is plausible. Seven is old enough for the age of accountability if you're uh, IFB. Uh. You're old enough to declare yourself a sinner and say that you want to be saved by Jesus. So... And change your, yeah, change your destiny of your soul forever. Two years later, so around 1944, Alberto's grandmother and two aunts come to pick him up from seminary to visit his dying mother. As his mother was dying, she was screaming about seeing monsters and ugly things coming for her. But the priest who came to visit her said she's received the sacraments. She's even got a special indulgence from the Pope. I don't know what's up with her. The thing I noticed here was that his father says nobody was more devoted to the Virgin Mary 
not nobody was more devoted to God or nobody was more devoted to Jesus. Yeah, and this is more of a normal Catholic thing to say than a lot of other things in this comic. There's a lot in here that is just complete propaganda made up BS. This isn't necessarily one of them. That's a thing that somebody might say about a Catholic mom. Of course, Chick is telling the story that he's telling. So, of course, he chooses to emphasize this rather than anything else that the characters might have said. But Marian devotion is definitely something that is plausible to see from a Spanish Catholic in 1944. This makes sense. I do have a lies about Catholicism alert uh, from this this section of the comic. Hit me. Alberto sees his mother die in fear. And why was she feeling afraid? Why was she saying she was being dragged to hell when she had received all the sacraments and she got an indulgence from the Pope? Like, what's going, you know, so Alberto says, Father Abraham must be a liar. He's supposed to be Jesus, and Jesus didn't help. An asterisk, asterisk leads to a text box at the bottom of the panel, which reads, Canon law and dogma, by reason of ordination, the priest is granted two powers, to forgive sins and perform mass. These place him in the position of Jesus, according to Roman Catholic teaching. This in the position of Jesus, that's a misdirect. Talking about the Christians of, of lots of different types talk about, I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Like, this is a metaphor that's really common. The Catholic teaching about priestly authority is like halfway between being the hands and feet of Jesus and the fiction that Chick is spinning here. In Persona Christi is, in layman's terms, a priest's ability to have Jesus act through him only when performing certain religious acts, namely the consecration of the Eucharist and the forgiveness of sins in confession. So it's kind of like channeling Jesus or letting Jesus use you as his puppet. It's a similar concept to somebody who has power of attorney and can sign a legal document for another person and the legality of the document holds up. It's a personal representative of Jesus. It's having power of attorney for Jesus. So I wanted to clear that up because Chick will claim many times in his anti-Catholic literature that priests or the Pope are considered to be Jesus present on earth. He will have popes proclaiming, I am Jesus on earth. And while this Catholic doctrine of in persona Christi goes well beyond the typical do good things and be the hands and feet of Jesus that is common in Protestantism, it is not a belief that the pope is Jesus on earth. It's the belief that the pope basically has Jesus's power of attorney. So this is where Tim and Jim come in. Uh... <laughs> So this is where, like, Alberto's real story gets mixed with the fiction of Tim and Jim. Also, although, like, Alberto's real story is about as real <laughs> as Tim and Jim, the beefy boys for Jesus. In the part of this comic that is fiction, even though the comic is supposed to be nonfiction. Tim and Jim are contacted by one of their friends in the super secret Beefy Boys for Jesus Real Christian Club. So they are contacted by one of their friends in the club and they are asked like, hey, can you take this guy, Alberto Rivera? He is on the run from the big bads who are out to get him. So Tim and Jim are, they're there as audience surrogates, basically. Like Alberto needs to be able to talk to someone and tell his story and all of these flashbacks. 
So it's exactly like in the first Beefy Boys for Jesus comic that we reviewed months ago. Like one of the two would ask a question and then the other one would have a convenient reason to go off on like two or three pages of exposition on theology or a Bible story or whatever Chick was trying to get across. I just, I don't think the Pasadena Playhouse School of Theater taught show don't tell very well in this case. Either that or Chick never, uh, or, or Chick just doesn't respect his audience enough to to be willing to do that. Because do, do you, okay, do you remember why John Todd was uh, discharged from the army? This is my question. Yes. Because um, it was, he was unable to distinguish reality from fiction. Right. I wonder if due to the fact that Chick is clearly blending like real people with fictional characters and saying this is true, I wonder if he suffers from the same problem that John Todd did. Uh, it would make I sense. Think a lot. It unfortunately would. I think a lot of us have learned, like when we meet someone with a wild story who is asking us for help, to think through their motives and respond accordingly. Like, does their story make sense? Do I get a vibe about them? What motive would they have to lie? What evidence supports the truth of their story? I think a lot of us learn this because one of two things happened to us in the past. We either believed someone when we could have figured out that they were not being honest and we got burned, or because we blew someone off who really needed help and then we learned later that they were legit. So we learned more discernment. We learned to hold space for, I don't know if this person is legit or not, let me look into it in good faith. And that's what I think Chick never learned. So Tim and Jim meet Alberto as an adult. He needs a place to stay for a few days because his car was run off the freeway and it's being repaired. They ask him who ran his car off the freeway. Like, was it a drunk driver? And Alberto says, no. Dun, dun, dun. It was the Jesuits. They're always trying to kill me. I mean, but like, how does he know? Did he see the guy? Did he like well, talk to the guy? Did he, like, no, he's just constantly like. Did he do Jesuit secret handshake? Do you remember how John Todd was constantly supposedly getting shot at in church parking lots? Yeah. That. Every inconvenience in his life is the Jesuits trying to kill him. Oh, no. Was the guy, what, was he getting run off the road by the Pope Mobile? That's who <laughs> showed up. <laughs> I got hit by the Pope Mobile. I mean, but like, if the Jesuits wanted to kill him. In in this in Alberto's story later on, you will see that the Jesuits had many opportunities to off this guy if they wanted to. But it's just wild to me that like clearly that their attempted assassination is like, let's cr get some rando to crash their car into his car and maybe he'll die. Possibly, yeah. I don't know. That seems like a good plan. Like it's it's very just not a good assassination attempt plan. Well, it's also not clear if Chick is claiming that this particular assassination attempt was real or not because we've got fictional characters being told about it. So it starts to get a little difficult to tell, like, did this supposed car running off the road incident actually happen or is that a part of the fictional part of the story that he's telling with Tim and Jim? Anyway, Alberto starts dropping bombshells, uh, otherwise known as conspiracy theories presented as absolute fact. He says, well, the Catholic Church is actually run by the Jesuit general who is known as the Black Pope due to his black vestments. So I looked this up because uh, in, in the comic, Alberto's like, it's actually the Black Pope. And Jim is like, do you mean like he's like the Pope and he's a black brother? <laughs> Which I guess is like the, the normal, like that would be like a normal thing to say in 1980. But seeing that now, 
is like kind of funny but anyway i saw it and he's like no the black pope is the head of the of the jesuits and i looked this up and apparently this is like a real thing that the black pope is a real thing and it's just what the leader of the jesuits is called colloquially but he doesn't run the church he's like below the pope in the catholic hierarchy um unless you believe the conspiracy theory that it really runs the church which is pretty common conspiracy conspiracy theory like i said earlier all these religious orders have an internal hierarchy which you've probably seen in movies so the jesuits are the largest religious order so the guy in charge of the jesuits is in charge of more people in religious orders than anybody else but that's it the jesuits see themselves as god's soldiers not really in the american like christian nationalism patriot prayer kind of way more in like an intelligentsia for jesus best and the brightest thinkers for jesus we will go anywhere and do anything for god kind of way the thing is because the jesuits had a bit of military inspiration in the very beginning and because they had this goal from the outset of attracting the best and the brightest the rumors really quickly spread that they had nefarious intentions and also their name sounds a little bit spookier than the other religious orders it was believed from the very beginning that they were planning to infiltrate society and exert political and social power so the idea that this black pope was telling the real pope what to do or that the jesuits were trying to take over and run the whole show this was kind of the og conspiracy theory about the jesuits and i have more information on that a little bit later so alberto also kind of waffles on this he says that the comic like he does on everything yeah he like in the comic he says that the jesuits are in charge of the vatican and i think that the reason for this is like according to the conspiracy the jesuits have closer ties to the illuminati than the regular catholic church so if you put the jesuits in charge of both of them then it's easier for him to libel everyday regular catholic like parishes as servants of the same evil master as the illuminati however like in the four horsemen comic he has like a tree of like hierarchy i mean it looks like the the branch of like governments but like at the top it says the vatican and then below that he's got the illuminati and he's got the jesuits as like separate things that are like on the same level it, it i mean it just he just isn't consistent with it's this. a spaghetti at the wall conspiracy theory so now we're gonna flash back to alberto's story after now that he's dropped a few truth bombs on tim and jim there so after the death of his mother he went back to seminary with his faith shaken his mother trusted the church she believed in all the teachings and yet she quote went out screaming into a christless eternity with a look of horror on her face that's pretty Ooh, brutal yikes um, so after alberto returned to school one night oh a uh, very very quick trigger warning for a, a mention of attempted sexual assault after alberto returned to school one night another seminary student climbed into bed with alberto and tried to kiss him alberto punched the guy he yells for the priest in charge of the school and when the priest arrives alberto told him what happened and the priest ordered him to get on your knees for confession Ooh that's it mm -mm. this is not how confession works the priest yells at him for rejecting the other student's love alberto then claims 
that he personally witnessed homosexuality at every level of the Catholic Church, all the way up to cardinals. He blames this on the vows of celibacy that are taken by people in holy orders and in religious life. This is a, an interesting little sidebar. So Tim Beefy Boy asks Alberto, Alberto, I've heard some old wives tales about workmen digging on Catholic property and uncovering hidden underground burial sites. They found baby skeletons, supposedly from nuns who had become pregnant. Is there any truth in that? Alberto responds, Oh yes, that is true. It happened in Seville, Spain around 1934. Also a discovery was made in Madrid in 1932, and another in the Basque region of northern Spain. The governments of Presidents Aznan and Ma Manuel Azana demanded a national investigation be made of all monasteries, convents, Roman Catholic schools, and church buildings. Was that true? I was not able to turn up online whether or not that happened like uh, like whether because the, the fact checkable part is did the government of president asnan or president azana demand a national investigation which you're not finding if i'm not like i'm turning up when i every like permutation of google that i could think of turned up articles in spanish and i that like couldn't be run through google translate I read Spanish on a very, very basic level. So if it's like a children's book, I can probably get the basics. I can't read like a newspaper article or a scholarly paper in Spanish and be able to understand it. I blame ACE. <laughs> I did take ACE Spanish. It was miserable. So I just, I wasn't able to get a hard confirmation on that. Um, the, the comic shows a little drawing of how a convent and a monastery were basically across the street from each other, and there was a little tunnel beneath them, and there were like little aborted babies in the tunnels. Like there's a there's a diagram. No, there's no source or like proof or anything. I bring it up because I do think it's interesting that we were hearing the same stories about the tunnels under Hiles Anderson. Like I, there was a, a long-standing rumor that there were like monks and nuns that lived in the Hiles Anderson building when it belonged to the Catholic Church, and that some of them had secret babies and buried them in the tunnels, and that's why Jack Hiles had to do an exorcism on the whole place before they could make a college out of it. Anyway, I, thought, I, I mean, it probably came from Jack Chick. The I, yeah, rumor. I wonder like what's the chicken or the egg here. <laughs> So back in seminary, Alberto reads the Bible in secret. He claimed in the comment in the comic that seminary students were not allowed to read the Bible unsupervised. It's definitely true that there were times in history when Catholics were discouraged or even banned from reading the Bible personally. It's also true that Catholics don't have a stronger tradition of personal Bible reading as a lot of Protestant denominations. I don't have evidence to support that a seminarian specifically would be outright banned from reading the Bible. Alberto got kicked out of class for questioning the leader's interpretation that Peter means sand, so Peter could not be the rock on which Jesus built his church. The teacher rips him a new one, kicks him out in front of the whole class, and then later he calls Alberto into his office and the teacher reveals that he secretly agrees with Alberto. The teacher says, I had to protect myself, although I agree with what you said. I could never let my students know what I really believe. So this is really important because Alberto is going to record multiple instances, multiple claims that someone higher up than him in the church admitted to him as a young person, as a student, oh, it's okay, I don't really believe it either. 
you don't have to really believe it. We just all have to work for the cause kind of things that people were saying to him. And this is really going to come together down the line in this story. Why those are the instances that he is reporting in this comic. The hypocrisy that he's seeing really bugs Alberto. He learns in seminary that the Jesuits did the Inquisition. And I want to directly quote this because we're going to fact check this. Uh, quote, the holy office which ran the Inquisition was run by Dominican monks, but the masterminds behind them were Jesuits. So I went into uh, the annals of history to fact check this to see whether or not this was true. Here's the, the story of the Inquisition. Basically, in order to maintain control and stamp out what they believed to be heresy, the Roman Catholic Church would have what they called inquisitions. Essentially, the Inquisition was a system of uh, tribunal religious courts that had their own officers uh, and that would work in tandem with uh, monarchies and regents to preserve the power of the church in whatever locality that they were. So be it France, Spain, Italy, wherever. An inquisition would be basically set up by the monarch or a regent to uh, or it could be set up by the church and it was basically church and state coming together to enforce church church doctrines as law the earliest inquisitions were in the 12th century and there were in, uh, inquisitions in italy france portugal most famous one was in spain the spanish inquisition was legendary for its brutality so alberto rivera claims that the jesuits created the spanish inquisition in order to fight against the protestant reformation but this is impossible because the Spanish Inquisition began in 1478, a full 39 years prior to Martin Luther starting the Protestant Reformation and 62 years before the founding of the Jesuits. So uh, like the order of events is completely out of order. So it's first the Inquisition, then the Reformation, then the Jesuits. Undoubtedly, because the Inquisition lasted for hundreds of years, there were Jesuits who were involved with the Inquisition, but to say that they founded the Inquisition is like when people say that Taylor Swift invented feminism. <laughs> the, like, the Inquisition itself was enacted by the Spanish monarchy in order to uphold Catholic power in Spain and essentially to be a cudgel to wield against political dissidents and religious minorities by accusing them of heresy. The, him saying it was the Jesuits that were doing the Spanish Inquisition is... Or, or that did the Spanish Inquisition is just blatantly false. And that's so easy, like any history book would tell you that that's wrong. Right. But you know, the Jesuits wrote the history books to make everybody think that the Catholic Church is A-OK -okay and they're just a different kind of Christian and they can follow their own type of Christianity and they'll still go to heaven. And then that's how the devil tricked a billion people into going to hell. Including Alberto Rivera's mother. Just, just to be clear, we are not trying to excuse the Inquisition. We are just uh, pointing out that historically the Jesuits did not start it because they weren't there when it started. So this is a, oh, we are going to talk about a, a story that is similar to something you would find in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm going to skip like the graphic torture details on this one. But heads up, the comic goes into the story of Donna Isabella, who was pregnant and in the early phase of labor while worshiping in a secret meeting on May 21st, 1559, when she was arrested by the Holy Office, which is the office that was responsible for the Inquisition in Spain. The comic gives a very detailed description of her torture. It is quite graphic. 
Donna Isabella says in the tribunal as she's being tried for being a heretic, she says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And the Catholic tribunal priest yells back at her, stop, heretic. The Virgin Mary said that. You liar. It was the Holy Mother who said that, not Jesus. She is the way, not Jesus. Put her to death. And Donna Isabella gets burned at the stake. Is this a real story or not? This sounds kind of fake. So that's a good question. And this is probably the deepest rabbit hole I have ever gone on for this podcast. So buckle up. So I want to address there's two parts of this that can be fact-checked. The first part is the Jesus didn't say that, Mary said that. Because I think that definitely caught the ear of anyone who has fundy experience, because we would have memorized the scripture verse where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I, I wanted to track down that part first. It turns out in an old version of the divine office, there is a scripture reading where Mary says, in me is the way, the truth, and the life. This is an extra canonical book that was provided to people in holy orders or religious life around the time of the story that we're talking about. And that extra biblical, extra canonical book does quote the Virgin Mary as saying, in me is the way, the truth, and the life. However, the, the most common interpretation of Mary's words there is she is saying, I gave birth to the Son of God. Like literally inside my body is the way, the truth, and the life. Because the way, the truth, and the life is like inside me right now. So if you squint and look at it sideways and try to be as bad faith as possible, you could interpret it this way if you really want right, and to. then misquote and then misquote what mary may or may not have said in this extra canonical extra biblical book <laughs> right so it is possible it is possible that if this story were real an inquisitor might have misquoted this prayer book and said this to donna isabella during her tribunal trial this it is absolutely possible because an inquisitor would have been most likely a Dominican monk or could have been a priest, and both monks and priests would have had access to that version of the divine office that has that quote from Mary. The other thing about this is that the Inquisition was as much a political body as it was a um as it was a religious one. So if there was somebody who was deemed to be a possible political problem, then they could basically reach into whatever bag of contradictions that they wanted to reach into to find a potential heresy that this person had committed in order to get them and in order to absolutely so this could have if this story happened it is surely possible that donna isabella quoted scripture and this inquisitor turned her words on their side against her in bad faith as well as he could have just made a mistake however i'm really not convinced that the story itself is real about the martyrdom of donna isabella i googled donna isabella 1559 martyr the only things that came up share a source with this comic or are sourced directly from this comic. Interesting. Confirms absolutely nothing. So then I pulled up a full text of Fox's Book of Martyrs, which really fucking triggered me. <laughs> that was fun. Should we do but an I episode on this one? You know, now that I've desensitized myself to it recently, maybe we should. That'd probably be good. It's a good, like, it's a good uh, Halloween-y kind of 
topic. So once I got over the trigger, I keyword searched Fox's Book of Martyrs for a lot of different things. I looked up Donna Isabella. I looked up Donna. I looked up Isabella. I looked up burned. I read through every single instance of the word burned or burn in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Found nothing. I looked up 1559. Found nothing. So obviously Fox's Book of Martyrs doesn't include every single person who was ever martyred, but it's a pretty solid source for all of the ones that most people know about for sure. There's a key fact presented in this comic that we haven't yet mentioned. The comic says that Donna Isabella was the cousin of King Philip II of Spain. And it goes so far as to say that King Philip II attended her execution and was happy to see it. Like he enjoyed her execution because he was happy to see another heretic die. They all, like all of the royalty during that time were all killing each other because they didn't, because they're like, I want to stamp out any potential claims to the throne that could have a, a motive to come after me. Right. So this is where I got into the deepest rabbit hole that I have ever been down on this po- Sorry, Jen, rabbit trail. <laughs> anyway, I looked into the ancestry of King Philip II of Spain, and I spent a good deal more time than I should have on this. He was a Habsburg, so literally anybody in Europe could have been his cousin. But this comic is written for an American audience. It does not specify that Donna Isabella was anything other than his first cousin. So I'm going to assume that it means his first cousin. I'm going to look at all of his first cousins. Philip II of Spain was descended from Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, Archduke of Austria, and his wife, Isabella of Portugal. So if Donna Isabella was his cousin, she is either the daughter of one of Charles V's brothers or sisters, or the daughter of one of Isabella's brothers or sisters, right? Stands to reason. Charles V was descended from Philip I, King of Castile, aka Philip the Handsome, who had six children, Eleanor, Charles, Isabella, Ferdinand, Mary, and Catherine. All six, except for Mary, so five out of those six children, had children of their own. In fact, Ferdinand had 15 children, uh, may have been an early fundamentalist, but none of the those children were named Isabella, except a daughter of Catherine, who died at only one year old. All of these people were related to each other. All of them have the same names. Most of them died young. But there are no cousins named Isabella on his father's side. So the cousin would have to be on Philip II's mother's side. So Isabella of Portugal's siblings' children. Isabella of Portugal's mother and father were King Manuel I of Portugal and Maria of Aragon. Isabella had seven siblings who lived into adulthood. Two of them are ruled out because they became priests and later cardinals in the Catholic Church. And none of the other five had a child named Isabella, which is kind of extremely unlikely because all of these people had the same names as each other because they're all named after each other and there were several Isabellas who married into the family. But Philip II did not have a cousin named Isabella. And just to double check, I also went through all of his nieces and nephews because all of these people are related in multiple ways and none of his brothers or sisters had surviving children named Isabella. So there would be nobody who could possibly be a threat to the line of succession whose name was Isabella or who could... And also it's a woman, so she wouldn't be a threat to the line of succession anyway. She would be somebody that you would want because then you could marry her off to somebody else for a political alliance or... But, it's but like, just... I cannot find 
any record of this person existing. Does Alberto say where he got this story from? I'm wondering if this is just like a myth or an urban legend, or if this is one of those things that he claims that he pulled out. Like, cause he says later in the comics of the Vatican has like this place in their or basement with like the records of everything. Like, so I don't know if he's got like this story and he found it next to the binder where they have all the nuclear codes in it. <laughs> You know, or, or like the, 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 the real story of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa and like the. No, he, he doesn't give us a source for this. I spent way too much time on this and almost made our episode publication date late because of this. This one really stuck in my head because she's not in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I cannot find her in any secular historical records. I was even on some genealogy websites looking for her, could not find her. I could not find any evidence that such a person ever existed. Why would Alberto make up a whole new person for this comic instead of just using one of the hundreds of stories from Fox's Book of Martyrs? Because he's kind of lazy. I don't know. That's I mean, that, that's like honestly <laughs> yeah, my, my take is that this is a dude who, um, I mean, and we know he's a liar and we'll get into how we know he's a liar later in this episode. But the reason why you would be this kind of grifter is if you didn't want to get like a f***ing actual job and work and do real things that, you know what I'm saying? Or if, if you don't want to get a or just job. just like sustain yourself because like the idea that we all have to be a benefit to society is not really necessary because some people just need to like live their life and sustain themselves and that's fine be a good person live your life take care of your family but alberto was none of those things <laughs> you know if you're working like a wage job what you're doing is you're renting out your time but he doesn't want to can do that he just wants to go around the country and have people cheer for him and stand on sage and say a bunch of that he made up and not actually do any work and have all of his things in his life taken care of by somebody else because he doesn't want to take personal responsibility for anything that's going on and that's the reason why you become this sort of grifter right but in order to make all of that happen he has to set himself up to be a really big shot yeah and that's where we get into his spy so i think it would be a good time to go take up the offering and when we come back we can talk about alberto's spy sounds good hey listeners we're gonna take a week or two off before we come back with part two i'll see if i can come up with a bonus episode to release in the meantime but we will be back in a couple weeks to drop part two of our alberto rivera episode and then we'll finish off the Summer of Satan, be ready to go with our third anniversary episode. We're really excited to show you guys what we have coming in the fall. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to show it to you guys. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. 
Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We talked about the first part of Alberto's story um, and, and some of his claims in the first part of his story, none of which are true. All of it is false. Every single piece of this is completely made up including the part that we're about to get into well our, where Alberto Rivera claims that he's like a secret agent for the Vatican but like an international evil international super spy dun, 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 dun. he works for the KGB the um actually the KGB <laughs> work for the Soviet Union who work for the Vatican <laughs> you heard it here first um <laughs> So you heard it here second <laughs> this is uh this is Alberto's story uh this is the continuation so when he was 14, Alberto claims that he began training to infiltrate Protestant churches. His bosses taught him how to blend in in these churches, and over the course of time, he infiltrated hundreds of churches. Alberto was specifically trained to infiltrate into Plymouth Brethren, Pentecostals, Baptists, and United Evangelicals. So how this would work when he was still in seminary in Spain is that he would be provided with names of people who weren't showing up at mass because the priests would make a list of like people who used to come to mass and didn't anymore and turn them into the government. And then the government would turn them into the Jesuits and then Alberto would get a list of these names. He would be assigned to meet them like a planned meet cute kind of thing, get invited to dinner, ingratiate himself to the family and then get invited to their church. Once he got to the church, he would get super involved at this secret underground church and get everyone's names and then turn them in to the Spanish government who would raid the church and arrest everyone. The premise for this, for their raids, is that the Spanish Inquisition never actually ended and that it's still operating in secret and religions that aren't Catholicism are illegal in Spain, which was not the case like it wasn't illegal to not be catholic in spain this is in, in like the 1960s this is i did a deep dive into this <laughs> yeah loony um like but basically he, he has to get in uh get the trust of the ministry wrap people out um and he says that he did this to at least 19 churches in spain on one occasion he even allowed himself intentionally to be caught by the police so that his name would appear in the paper as a heretic and so that other churches that he infiltrated would know that he was trustworthy so his base claim here is that catholicism was quote the only religion allowed in spain this is definitely true about a large period of time from the 1500s all the way into the 1800s believe it or not oh i believe it although <laughs> it's spain the inquisition had like <laughs> cooled down considerably by the 1800s but the last death formally attributed to the inquisition in spain was in fact in 1826 
So not even quite 200 years ago now. In 1834, the Inquisition was formally ended by royal decree, and in 1851, Catholicism became the Spanish state religion. The How the state religion thing worked was the government heavily subsidized things like priests' salaries and upkeep on Catholic buildings. This practice ended in 1931, but was reestablished five years later and continued going along like that until it all fell apart after Vatican II. But the religions that were not Catholicism were not illegal at that time. No. Um, I did find out exactly what the rules were. So, Alberto claims that he was 14 when he started doing this. Yeah. So, we are looking around 1949. 14 to 17 would put us in the range of 1949 to 1952. At this time, Catholicism was the only religion, was the state religion, and it was the only religion to have legal status in Spain. Other religions were not allowed to do the following things. Number one, advertise church services. Number two, own property. And number three, publish books. It was not in any way illegal to believe or practice a religion other than Catholicism. It was not illegal to hold church services. Although any religion other than Catholicism could not even meet in a building that outwardly appeared to be a church. So if you were a Protestant church or a non-Christian religion who wanted to have meetings in Spain uh, around this time, late 40s, early 50s, you would have to meet in a meeting, some sort of meeting hall that didn't look like a church. Like you could have a strip mall church. But you couldn't have it like Stephen Anderson, but you couldn't have a church in a building that looks like a church. The Catholic Church had incredible amounts of privilege from the Spanish government. And I would even go so far to say that Protestants were persecuted. But it does not appear that Alberto's narrative of being arrested simply for practicing another religion holds up very well like it was it was bad times for protestants don't get me wrong yeah that i mean that seems like that's that's not good freedom of religion that seems like that's that's a, a, a very bad situation and those laws are unjust um sure but they're but i i don't see like oh you had a secret underground church meeting and then you got raided and arrested that didn't line up with what i found yeah they're not locking up people uh having a basement home church but what he would essentially do was he was getting the names of of everybody who was in the church he he says it goes to a database i don't know if it's a computer database i assume by the 80s it would have been a computer database because they're the vatican and they have the the latest gizmos and gadgets because they're spies um but he tells a story about how one time he and a young woman were both undercover plants in a baptist church and they started a rumor that the preacher was having an affair with the girl in order to divide the church. This plan was successful. The preacher's wife divorced him. The church fell apart. And Alberto and the young woman moved on to the next church. When the Catholics find out that there is a righteous man of God, the Catholics would have a three-step plan to bring him down where basically if the first step doesn't work then they move on to the second step and if the second step doesn't work they move on to the third the first thing that they'll try is to try to discredit him if that doesn't work then they'll try to isolate him and if that doesn't work then they'll just kill him so the first step what they'll do is they'll start a controversy or a scandal um they'll make a false allegation to bring him down on one occasion alberto says that they planted a woman on the side of the road 
with car trouble who then made a false rape allegation against the preacher who stopped to help her this seems highly illogical and Uh, unlikely to me like uh, logistically very difficult to do yeah this is where we really get into like some john todd type narrative out of alberto yeah uh i also feel incredibly icked out that he specifically calls out false allegations of rape and sexual assault as a way that they would discredit these preachers very john uh very jack scop of him very yeah Yeah. very a lot of people and that really icks me out um i did want to say like this reads like it could be from hamilton i'll i'll read it to you number one destroy his reputation by lying about him twisting something he said making him look like an enemy of the country to get him in trouble with the officials or frame him with a woman she could be planted as his secretary to have an affair with him is that what hamilton sounds like kind of jack chick wrote hamilton um the most effective (laughs) yeah so this is the most effective strategy if it doesn't work then they basically what they do is they start like a whisper campaign um to get that church to i guess believe that he doesn't have the light of god shining through him or something well what what alberto described doing was he'd go to like half of the church members and tell them well you know that catholics are really good christians just like everybody else and uh, i don't know why your pastor can't support our catholic brothers and sisters and then he'd go to the other half of the church and he would say well you know that catholics are tools of satan and that they're pulling people away from the true gospel i don't understand why your pastor keeps supporting these catholics that's not a very slick thing to do especially if it's you who's doing it to everyone they're like wait who said that he was supporting? oh it was alberto i thought alberto was the one saying, <laughs> like the, you're not slick if you do that okay but these people can't text so they don't have like screenshots and receipts of everything yeah but you have to cut him a little bit of a break they're church people they know each each other they'll be like who said that to you True. alberto oh alberto said the it new to me. kid the new kid the the guy that just showed up last <laughs> week what are we doing here right. we, we this guy's been our pastor for for 15 years and alberto showed showed up a week ago and he starts making allegations and stuff and being crazy and as soon as he showed up wild stuff started happening i don't trust this guy i think he's an op I, if this doesn't work then they'll basically their last resort is to kill him and they'll go out of their way to make it look random so they might make it look like a mugging gone wrong or a car crash or they might pull some strings to get him uh put in a mental hospital and then kill him with drugs a la like one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah a couple things i i noticed while we were talking about this that alberto is portraying these you know bible believing real christians in spain as being very naive he's portraying them as being easily misled by a 14 15 16 17 year old kid Yeah, he's literally a teenager i think that's a tactic because who is this book meant to be sold to i didn't even think of that real bible believing christians in the u.s his his grift is you are getting fooled and this is how you're getting fooled wake up be smarter than these people whose churches I raided, whose churches I took down. Now you're in on it. Now you're smarter. Now you're better than these people. So it's basically just running interference for all of the abusive pastors that are out there that could prompt people to leave or prompt churches to blow up when somebody does something. But yeah, but also that it's a sales tactic, like to make like uh, making the buyer feel good about themselves is the biggest sales tactic there is 
He's like, you are a real Bible-believing church member, but you're smarter than these people in Spain because look how easily I misled all of these churches. But now you have this information and now you're better than them and smarter than them and you're not going to get misled by the secret Jesuits in your church. That's a really smart observation, though. I didn't notice it like three times through the comic to write notes for this episode. And I didn't notice it until now. So it also just plays right into the IFB narrative about pastors. Yeah, I mean, I can see Jack Scop's defense like he like because this is a teenage girl. He could be saying that mm -hmm. girl was a plant. The she was a Jesuit plant. She was a Jesuit plant. Nothing that she's saying is true. Or she uh, found me in a moment of weakness, and that's when she chose to strike. It's not my fault. I was set up. And people are going to be like, "That's mm -hmm. I read that in the comic book. That's that's true. That's real." Oh man! Yeah, if someone accuses your pastor of having an affair, she's probably a Catholic plant, and he might not even have fallen for her seduction. She could just be lying, and it plays right into the existing IFB narrative of like, don't ruin his ministry. It's so it's it's that's insidious. So Alberto went undercover to an interdenominational Bible college in Costa Rica with two women. Carmen and Marie. Carmen was to be his girlfriend, and Marie was to be a single woman who would use her feminine wiles to corrupt the young men of the Bible college. Alberto went to the college and was successful convincing everyone he was anti Catholic by fighting very publicly with his Jesuit priests. Of, of course, they were like in on it. So they know to, to like, you know, duke it out with him verbally, at least. Um, right. He would cause a commotion on campus by holding hands with his girlfriend in order to influence people to challenge the dating rules and therefore have a downfall of morality. He also fought with the pastors, fought with the administrators, was generally a troublemaker. Meanwhile, Marie managed to seduce 17 students and then managed to get them expelled as well as three pastors, which is funny because to, like, to me, if you're a professor and you're being seduced by a student, then you should lose your job. But they act like, oh, the, the men, the, the pastor, they all have no agency here. It's like the that's the funding narrative, isn't it? Yeah. Like men are the strong leaders. They are the ones with the true moral compass from God and women are meant to be followers and let men make all the decisions. But men are also absolutely powerless against a Jezebel woman, a seductive woman. Men are completely incapable of resisting powerful temptation. I wonder if Bob Larson went to Marie, how many Jezebel demons she would have. Oh, probably a lot, a lot of Jezebel, of Jezebel demons. demons. Yeah. He'd have to do yeah. like 14 exorcisms. Yeah. I'm not going to get on my soapbox today, even though I want to, because uh, my baby is probably not going to sleep much longer. But this, it infantilizes women and takes women's agency by saying that men are the powerful, strong leaders and the only ones who get real messages from God and you always have to be a follower. And then it turns around and bites men too, because men are incapable of of resisting any kind of advances from a woman or even just a beautiful woman so it it is a vicious cycle that takes everybody's agency alberto says that he and his cronies were able to cause so much division and upset at this interdenominational bible college that it was on the verge of closing he said he led a three-day hunger strike among the students that made the news 
and the administration wanted to kick him out, get him out of the country because his visa to be in Costa Rica was tied to being at this Bible college. So if they could revoke the visa, then he would have to go back to Spain. So the Vatican got with the government of Spain and the Vatican told the government of Spain to say that Alberto was an army deserter so that then he would leave the college and get him back to Spain quickly so that the school wouldn't find out that he was a Jesuit infiltrator all along. This doesn't make any sense. This is Does this like seem completely unnecessary when he could have just waited for the college to kick him out of the country? Yeah, or he could have just like literally said I'm done with this place. This place doesn't have any morality to it. I'm going home. I'm flying back to Spain and gotten on a plane and done it. And no one would have been the wiser. Right. Um, also, he didn't leave Costa Rica, which Ooh. I can prove. And we'll get to that. But I just just put a pin in the whole Vatican got me out of the country by claiming I was an army deserter thing, because I'm, I am going to circle back around to that in a minute. So he also says that the Catholic Church says that Mary was also immaculately conceived and therefore that she was co-equal with God and that this is necessary for them to trick people into worshiping Mary and viewing her as their ticket to salvation rather than Jesus. This way people won't go to heaven and the devil will win. This is wild to me. I read this and I'm I'm not aware of any of these like Catholic Mary conspiracies there are these like so this is a this is actually a half truth. Huh. So the the true part is the immaculate conception of Mary. And this is a Catholic doctrine that I struggle with but not as much as I struggle with others, which means it's incredibly interesting to me because when I feel a conflict or a struggle, like that's that's the good part for me. So the teaching is that Mary was conceived in the natural way by a human mother and a human father. Unlike Jesus, who was conceived supernaturally from a human mother without a human father. But Mary was divinely preserved from sin from the moment of conception. So Mary has fully human DNA, but she has never sinned and was never touched by the Adam's curse of sin, even from the time she was an embryo. Because Jesus is considered in Catholic doctrine to have been born from a human egg, but no sperm. So the egg that made Jesus, which was originally part of Mary's body, would have to be genetically sinless in order for Jesus to be genetically sinless. Because the Christian teaching as a whole, as an oversimplification, is that sin is genetic, like literally in your DNA. Sadie, this is what I mean when I say that Christians just be like making up. <laughs> it's like, like <clears throat> the problem, the problem with taking religion seriously is that the more you take religion seriously, the more you have to take it seriously. This, I mean, I'm just like, this seems fake. That seems, the more I learn about the Christian doctrines, I'm just like, yeah, this seems made up as f No see, offense like, to any Christians out here, but like. <laughs> well, to people, to people like me, this, you know, leads me to not, not into more trying to figure out how it works scientifically or scripturally, it leads me more into a respect for the mysteries of religion that I don't understand. Like, I don't feel the need to go thinking about Jesus's DNA. It, it's more of like, mm. oh, that's holy. 
like, oh, that's something that I don't need to understand for me. So, so that, that part is true anyway, that Mary was conceived without sin and preserved from sin for her entire life and never sinned. The lie, of course, is that the church purposely came up with this doctrine to make Mary co-equal with God and trick people into seeing her as their ticket to heaven instead of Jesus. The doctrine is not that she is co-equal with God or with Jesus. It's more like she was a human being and she did God the, the biggest favor ever. And also she did me a favor because she brought Jesus into the world, who is the like the the connection point for God's grace getting to me as a human being. So we would all consider her our spiritual mother because she birthed salvation incarnate. Salvation comes from God through Jesus because of his sacrifice. But there is a human being who is physically and spiritually responsible for Jesus getting here so that he could give us the grace through his sacrifice. So we should probably all be really nice to her. But Catholic doctrine does not elevate Mary to a position within the Trinity, nor does it make her a demigod or a figure of divinity, although it does elevate her to a very high position spiritually. This, I mean, okay. That's going to be interesting um, to half the audience. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So basically, after completing his missions, Alberto was invited to the Vatican where he attended a secret black mass with the black pope. Dun, dun, dun. Black pope was wearing a masonic ring also dun 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 alberto realized that the masons had been the catholics all along <laughs> which and he was scheduled doesn't fit with any john yeah. todd or anybody else ah. uh, he he was scheduled to speak at a meeting of latin protestants in guatemala and in front of the crowd during his speech he spilled the beans and said that he'd lied to everybody and then the catholics kidnapped him and locked him in 
a padded room with a straitjacket and found him guilty of heresy. Then they tortured him and left him without food or water, and he was kept in an iron lung because his body basically just stopped working um, because he was starved and tortured. Everything changed when he asked Jesus to forgive him for everything that he had done, and he suddenly felt a burst of strength and was able to use this strength to escape from the iron lung. He was sent back to Madrid, and the Jesuits tried to reprogram him, but they were unsuccessful. Alberto left Spain and left the Catholic Church for good, and ever since then, he's been on the Vatican-slash-Jesuit hit list. They've tried to kill him in many ways, and they've also tried to make it look like an accident. They've tried to poison him. They've tried to crash a car into him. They've tried to kidnap him, but they have not been successful. There's a few things to fact check here. (laughs) Um, Let's start with the easy one, shall we? Yeah. So Alberto said that they had him kept. So they they took him to, uh, I would say, an asylum might be a good way to describe it. I'm trying to look at exactly what he calls it. He, he he's like in a, a like the Vatican. He's not. He's like in a in, in a basement in in Madrid somewhere in like the, some church basement, I guess, next to the ping pong table and like the basketball hoops and the um and the, the, the billiard table. Youth group is meeting next door. They're singing songs with the guitar. He says it's a secret place for priests who have gone insane. So he's implying that there are others like him who wanted to leave the church and that if you wanted to get out of the Catholic priesthood, that they would kidnap you and take you to the secret place in Barcelona and like reprogram you. So here, here's the thing. He says that at this asylum, they keep him in an iron lung and he was able to escape because Jesus gave him a burst of strength. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with iron lungs because... One of my dad's best friends later in life was in an iron lung as a kid, and he wrote a book about it, Monty Watts. For those who did grow up fundamentalist, you probably have heard of this book. And I don't think so. I quote, this is the exact quote from the book, as Alberto says it. He says, I climbed out of the iron lung and removed the tubes from my body. He see, the, the guy sees, um, in the hallway he like gets out of the iron lung and he's walking down the hallway guy looks at him and says who took you out of the iron lung and alberto responds jesus did he's given me life so to start with um iron lungs don't have tubes inherent to the device i'm not sure what tubes he would be referring to that he removed from his body you can't just like pull a catheter out can you depends on what kind so iron lungs work on negative pressure for those who weren't familiar with the device it is it kind of looks like that submersible thing that imploded but it's it's a sealed container on one end there is a hole that a person's head goes through and a gasket that seals it pretty tightly around their neck on the other end is like a rubber diaphragm that can expand and contract the machine will create a vacuum inside the machine, lowers the, like a semi vacuum, lowers the pressure inside the machine. That pressure low forces the person's lungs to expand 
and draw in air through the person's mouth and nose, which are outside the machine. So it manually expands your lungs for you so that you breathe in. Then the machine will blow air back into the machine, back into itself. The machine raises the pressure inside, which gently compresses the person's lungs, forcing them to breathe out through their mouth and nose, which are outside the machine. We don't use them anymore now because we have ventilators. Right. It's, it is a precursor to a ventilator. It saved a lot of people's lives during polio um, and from other diseases. But it is a manual breathing machine that forces a person's lungs to breathe in and out. And the whole thing works because it is a sealed container. They were typically used for people who were experiencing some type of, of paralysis, including full body paralysis or nearly so. I was not able to find a schematic of iron lungs because I was still burned out from researching the entire Habsburg family tree, but I don't see why there would be a handle on the inside of a machine that is intended for somebody who can't move their own body. I don't think there's a way for somebody to get out of an iron lung on their own. I don't think that if it's sealed, like, if it's sealed, there's got to be a lock, and the lock would not be on the inside because of who it is intended to be used for. I'm just assuming that Jesus gave him power, and he just, like, turned into the Incredible Hulk and was just like, Rawr! So Jesus gave him <laughs> Jesus gave him strength to Hulk smash out of an iron lung. Is that what yes. he is saying here? He, he says, Jesus gave me life, and I assume that it's just like Jesus was like... Or did Jesus just, like, come in, like... Hey, bro, I got you and like flip the the locks on this thing. Yeah, but because he was in there because he had been tortured so bad that he could that he like couldn't breathe anymore and that he'd been like starved and left without water. So I assume that also maybe the tubes could have been for like IV fluids or something. I don't know this. It, it Yeah, but you can't you can't have an IV inside an iron lung. Like, if you know how an IV bag works and you know how an iron lung works, they're, they're incompatible. The, the iron lung works on pressure. So if you were running an IV tube into there, you'd be messing up the, the air pressure that makes the iron lung work. Well, maybe they just put it into his neck. I don't know. His, his That would be the only way it would work. And then that's like, ugh, and his can't do that. face and neck <laughs> didn't have any anything going into or on them on the uh the, on the picture that jack tr or excuse me that uh that uh, fred carter drew in the book so i just i cannot prove that he is lying about this but i can tell you it is extremely implausible and i do not believe this part of his story there is a zero percent chance that this is real there is like a negative like if there was the odds on it i would i it would be like minus 1000 is the the, the odds on this <laughs> where did he come up with this i guess he was just assuming that nobody who was reading this would have ever been near or around an iron lung before either that or it, maybe it's just like the kind of thing where if you're doubting his story where he just like keeps coming up with crazier and crazier things and saying jesus let me do this thing and if you doubt the first one then you're probably gonna not believe the ones that came after it but if you believe the first one then the second one is slightly crazier and you get to the point where you're just like well i believe that jesus can do anything so why couldn't he do this and if you doubt him then you're doubting the power of jesus i also want to look at this thing in guatemala in 1965 so reading directly from the comic alberto quote 
By this time, I was destroyed. My hope was gone. I was on tranquilizers. I was to speak before an ecumenical meeting of Latin Protestant leaders and Roman Catholics in Guatemala. There were to be 50,000 people in the stadium. I committed an unpardonable sin. I exposed what Rome was up to. So according to Alberto, he got up on the stage and confessed to infiltrating churches and framing pastors. He told 50,000 people that the love gospel and the acceptance of Catholics was going to lead people straight to hell and, and that the Catholic church was a false religion. Wow. I can't imagine that the Catholic leaders were too pleased about that. Yeah. So this is this is how he got shipped off to the place where priests who have lost their minds in Barcelona to attempt to reprogram him. So I don't think I'm going to be able to find any information about this exact event. Uh, a problem that I've run into a couple times researching this episode is that newspapers that would be relevant to what I need are in Spanish, and I don't read Spanish on like a newspaper level. I would like to know, though, I think I can track down whether or not it's plausible that this event could have possibly happened. So I looked up all of the stadiums in Guatemala and sorted them by the years that they were built and filtered for only stadiums that will hold more than 50,000 people. And what I found, and this is this and the Habsburg stuff are like the weirdest research I've ever done for this podcast. And it was extremely enjoyable. I know how much you love doing <laughs> this, like really. I mean, this is getting to like Paul Sand, me looking up like high school yearbooks and football schedules. This is Paul level. Sand level. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so turns out uh, there's, there's only one stadium in Guatemala that ever held 50,000 people. Uh, it's and please excuse my accent. It's Estadio Nacional Doroteo Guamuch Flores. It is the largest stadium in Guatemala. It is in Guatemala City. It's also been used for like national games, like pre-Olympics tryout stuff. Um, it was built in 1946, and it's the only stadium anywhere close to big enough that was that was built before 1965. Now the stadium has a capacity of 26,000 people with plastic seats, but when it was originally built, it could fit 50,000 people on wooden benches. And that was the only stadium in Guatemala at the time that would hold that many people. So if it happened, it happened in this stadium. There was a civil war going on in Guatemala uh, <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah, at what? the time that he claims this thing happened. But the fighting does not... I, I looked up like the, the places that the fighting was happening during the year of 1965, and the fighting does not seem to have been centered on Guatemala City. Guatemala City had like minor clashes, but the main actual war was not there. So let's continue. <laughs> there was definitely a Pentecostal movement in Guatemala in the 1960s. There was a, a Protestant movement as a whole. I was not able to find anything about any large ecumenical conferences that were held. But again, if there was a news report on this, it would probably be in Spanish and be harder for me to find. I did turn up several large ecumenical organizations that have been doing work in Guatemala since the 1960s. I did also see that the Catholic Church was quote-unquote suppressed in Guatemala in the 1960s by anti-communist governments because the anti-communist governments thought that the Catholic Church was associated with Marxism. So it was like slightly less of a good time for the Catholic Church in Guatemala in the mid-60s. There was absolutely a Protestant, like, growth in the Protestant Church going on. 
the Capitol was not directly involved in the Civil War in 1965. So an event like the 50,000-member ecumenical conference that Alberto describes is not impossible. The only caveat is it would absolutely have to have been held at Estadio Nacional Doroteo Guamich Flores. That's the only place it could have been. Yeah, but right now, him saying, I spoke at an ecumenical conference in Guatemala in 1965, that's not like a crazy thing for him to say. No, not at all. Like this is no. this is possible. So I want you to hold on to that information because I'm, uh, Alberto is going. When we get to the proof that he provides in Jack Chick's book, we are going to come back to this and his supposed proof for this thing happening. So you were saying, um, let's like finish up his story and then we'll do his proof. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, you were saying that the Jesuits somehow just let him leave the country, but they've like been hot on his trail and trying to kill him ever since. So he he busted out of the iron lung. Basically, from there, he was able to get out of the Jesuits control. And he says that he left Spain with 40 cents in his pocket. And at this point, that's when this section of the comic ends, and he doesn't quite say what he got up to next. He just says, I left Spain with 40 cents in my pocket. So the next comic, Double Cross, like deals with what happened. Like It picks up exactly where Alberto leaves off. Alberto says that he has a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. and 40 cents in his pocket, but while he was in the airport in Madrid about to leave to go to D.C., he made a call to his sister. His sister was a nun in a convent in London, and she is frantic and crying and says that she has attempted to end her own life three times. So while he is on the phone with her, he missed his flight to D.C. And there was only one other flight out of Spain that night. And it just so happened that that flight was to London because it was God's will. So he got on the plane to London. My first question is, how did he buy a plane ticket to London with 40 cents? Like, I know inflation is a thing, but I don't buy that. And this is too early for credit cards. What he says is that he said, I left Spain with 40 cents in my pocket. So I assume that that's just like all he had. Like he bought a plane ticket and he's like, okay, I got like a hundred bucks or something left. And then he's like, oh crap, now I got to buy this different plane ticket. Now I only have 40 cents. Okay. So Jesus miraculously gave him the exact amount of money he needed to get on the flight to London. That's my uh, charitable interpretation of what he's saying here. Yes. I want to talk about his rescue of his sister next week in part two, because I think the end of the Alberto comic is a good time to look at the proof that he offers, which is not great, and the inconsistencies in his story that we haven't covered so far. Here's the thing. Alberto claims that he was born in Spain, uh, Canary Island, Spain. He went to Jesuit seminary at a young age. He was infiltrating Bible-believing churches in Spain at age 14. And then when he was 17, he went to do the same thing in Venezuela. And then he went to seminary in Costa Rica, where he tried to mess up this Bible college. So he was born September 19th, 1935. So Alberto is saying that he was infiltrating churches in Spain around 1949 to 1952. Then he went to Venezuela around 1952. And then he was in Costa Rica around 1953-ish. And then he was in the church, in the Catholic church, for another 12 years before blowing the whole thing at the giant stadium conference in 1965, when he would have been 30 years old. But he didn't fully leave Catholicism until 1967. He does give us the exact date on that as September 18th, 1967. Okay. So should we just start with the fact that he was in Hoboken, New Jersey in 1965? Really? 
Yep. Well, I mean, he like has arrest records, like arrest warrants and and lawsuits for fraud in New Jersey in 1965. Well, everybody knows that New Jersey belongs to the Italians and the Jews, and therefore it is clearly a Vatican slash Illuminati fortress and stronghold. So those arrest records were clearly faked by the Vatican and the Illuminati who have control of the government of the state of New Jersey. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so so we're going to get we'll get more into New Jersey because Alberto did provide some documentation on his travels between Spain and Central South America. How legit is his documentation? This documentation is as legit as a lot of documentation that we would see from this era. For example, I have my great grandmother's official ID card from the 1960s in Alabama. It's just a handwritten card. There's no photo of her. You just went to the DMV or whatever, and they gave you an official card and you just took a pen and wrote your name and phone number and address on it. And that's your ID card. Like, that's it. Wow. So his documentation is at least as legit as that. <laughs> um, we have, I'm looking at the, the things we have in You Don't Know Jack. Um, we have a visa that gives Alberto permission to leave Spain in 1955 and a statement from around that same time stating that he is not an army deserter and has a good civil record. We also have a letter from the head of the seminary that Alberto attended, basically asking permission for him to leave Spain to go to college there. And this is where we finally get the name of the seminary. Alberto does not give it to us in the comic book, but the seminary is Seminario Biblico Latinamerico in San Jose, Costa Rico. <laughs> So these letters, assuming that they're real, they do show that Alberto was at the seminary in Costa Rica around 1955. This does give us a little problem of two missing years between, between when he was published as a heretic in the paper when the house church he was involved with got raided. Because he was, if he was, he said he was 17, he'd have, that would have to happen in late 1952 to early 1953. But I think, Given multiple pieces of evidence, we can assume that he was in Costa Rica in 1955. So the name of the seminar is is Seminario Biblico Latin Americo, and it's in San Jose, uh, mm -hmm. Costa Rica. Um, so I searched for this, and I couldn't find it. I did find a school with a similar name, which is uh, Universidad Biblico Latin Americano, Oh, that could be the same school because Bob Jones University was originally Bob Jones College and Liberty had an early name change as well. So that could definitely be the same place. Yeah. Also, Jack Chick in his comments, like in his comics, frequently gets like the names for stuff wrong. Like if you read the names of stuff in the comics, I don't know if it's just like back then things were the name that we know of for something was something different or there will be a name for something that we usually read as like one word and they'll write it as two words especially if it's something that's translated from a different language or he'll just like change it or he'll just copy it down wrong. Anyway, I checked. Uh, I, I don't think that this is the school that um, Alberto would have gone to because I checked the school's website and they have pages on their website about like social justice and environmental justice. Or maybe that's proof that Alberto successfully messed them up with his Catholic doctrine and the love gospel and made them stray from the word of God. That makes sense, though, because, and we know this, is that progressive Christianity is a Catholic plot to try to trick good Bible-believing Christians into following the Illuminati. Right. And doing evil things like loving their neighbor. Yeah. Can't be doing that. We have another letter from the ambassador of Spain, uh, Jose Maria Cavanias, telling Alberto in 1956... Basically, you are no longer a deserter. Come back to Spain and join the army. 
This letter is presented as proof that the Jesuits got Alberto out of the seminary. I'm going to quote from You Don't Know Jack. Someone at the Spanish embassy or back home in Las Palmas or somewhere wanted Alberto out of that Bible seminary. Was it before they could discover Alberto was really a Jesuit on a Jesuitical mission? The power of the Spanish military backed Alberto's recall notice. This says he was drafted. But guess what? There is no documentation that Alberto raced home to the Canary Islands at this point. Huh. Also, Jesuitical. That's a word. Jesuitical. I, I mean, it. I understood what he was saying. I'm not. He could have just said on a Jesuit mission. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like when I was learning to spell when I was a little kid, it was the, the guess and go spelling is that you, you sound out yeah. the word and you write out what you think the word sounds like. And uh, then you come back and you fix it later. You know? When oh, the fundies think guess and go spelling is evil. Why? Because you have to drill your children with like standing and reciting words endlessly. And that's how you teach them to spell. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that trauma today. Other records of the Cornerstone magazine claims to have show that Alberta was simply expelled for excessive lying and fighting with administrators and being a problem child. So this, this letter from uh, the ambassador of Spain doesn't prove anything it doesn't prove like what we think is true it doesn't prove alberto's story because it just as well could be a draft notice that alberto ran from by leaving the seminary and then staying in costa rica it could have something to do with him being expelled it could have nothing to do with him being expelled this this is like non-proof for anything other than the, the fact that yes it's very likely that he was in costa rica I do find it interesting that John Todd um, was expelled for the army for the same reason that Alberto was kicked out of the seminary was just for there's a pattern excessive lying and being unable to distinguish fact from reality so there is one other thing though about this letter that I found extremely interesting the letter part of the letter reads quote Alberto Rivera Romero son of Juan and Teresa who live in this capital but his parents are dead his mom is supposedly quite dead uh she went screaming into a christless eternity if i recall <laughs> so his mom's death is a crucial part of his story and this letter kind of makes it seem like she was alive um i haven't found anybody else who's dug into that yet and i had just kind of already done enough <laughs> for this episode an actual helpful piece of documentation from the book You Don't Know Jack shows that Alberta was a circuit-riding Methodist Episcopal preacher in Costa Rica in 1958. This lines up with both Alberto's story and his detractors' stories. Alberto says that he was still a Jesuit and he was going around destroying Methodist churches. Alberto's detractors say that he was a grifter and the Methodists were his current grift at the time. Pretty much everybody agrees and we have photo evidence that Alberto was a Methodist Episcopal circuit-riding preacher in Costa Rica in 1958. So it's nice to like know where he was at one point. And it's weird it's, to it's see reassuring. the place where he was at one point be the place where he says he was because... Yes. <laughs> it's kind mm. of reassuring, though, that like everybody agrees on where he was exactly once in his life. It does seem that in the late 50s, while doing the Methodist Episcopal preacher thing, Alberto met his first wife, a uh, sort of wife, Carmen Lydia Torres. Alberto and Carmen were never legally married, but he said that God had ordained his marriage and that made it okay. Hmm. <laughs> Jack Scott. Here's where things get a little more obscure. Witnesses tell us 
that Alberto was working in the Christian Reformed Church in Hoboken, New Jersey in 1964 when his son Juan was born. Wait, so he was a Calvinist? He was grifting among Calvinists at the time. Okay. Uh, the Reverend the Reverend Edson Lewis was a supervisor of his at the time, and he testified that Alberto was physically abusive both to his wife and his newborn son. That's not surprising, but that's also really upsetting to hear. Yeah. Mm. Um, Alberto and Carmen got in trouble for writing bad checks in New Jersey. And then in 1965, they fled to Texas to get away from their, all their bad check problems. Uh, sadly, their infant son, Juan, died in El Paso, Texas in July of 1965. Uh, this is when Alberto supposedly was on the cusp of the big blow up at the ecumenical conference in Guatemala, or like this was the year that it happened. He was not in Guatemala. He was in Texas. Hmm. Being an abusive dad and husband. Um, Cornerstone Magazine did not publish proof of this, but I do trust them more than I trust Alberto. Well, they did their due diligence on the Mike Warnke. Yes, and on John Todd. Yes. And on other things that we've researched. Um, this, this particular article, I didn't have access to their source list like I would have wanted to. Uh, because I had to get this article through the Wayback Machine. So I can't, I'm not quite comfortable saying I know for sure, but I can tell you who I believe and it, it's Cornerstone. Also, 1965 is when Alberta was still supposedly a celibate priest. So having a child at all is kind of an issue <laughs> for that. Yeah, I mean, like Cornerstone is a Christian publication, but from having read what I have read from them, I trust their willingness to do good investigative journalism when they need to. So let's get to the big blow up. We're going to go back to Guatemala, this big thing, this big ecumenical conference. David W. Daniels in You Don't Know Jack addresses the missing year between the ecumenical conference in 1965 and the miraculous release from the Iron Lung and Escape from Spain in September of 1967. Daniels tells us, Alberto just got the date wrong. Oh. It was actually in 1966. And I'm hearing all of this in um, the voice of the guy from Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Our pets' heads are falling off. So Alberto just got the date wrong. Duh. It was actually in 1966. Oopsie daisy. He produces evidence for this. So Alberto gave Daniels a flyer from Guatemala City, which advertised Alberto's appearance at a Christian conference. So this is it, right? Like, this is proof that Alberto spoke to a conference of 50,000 people and told them all about the evils of the Catholic Church. His whole story is true. He just got a date wrong, right? It sounds right. No. <laughs> It's wrong. Okay, so what was he actually in Guatemala for then? So this document is reproduced in You Don't Know Jack as incontrovertible proof of Alberto's story. This is a conference from the flyer where he spoke in front of all those people. This flyer was printed extremely small in the book, and it's incredibly hard to read. But I ran it through Google Translate and probably increased my future eyeglass prescription in the process. <laughs> um, ran the entire thing through Google Translate manually typed it in. You're welcome. It is a flyer for a Christian conference in Guatemala City in 1966 featuring Alberto as a speaker. Like an ecumenical type of conference or was it just like a, a, a Methodist thing or was it like a, a Catholic thing? What's What kind of conference is it? What's going on here? So to match Alberto's claims in the book, it has to be both. It has to be a meeting of Catholics and Protestants specifically. 
The flyer does not mention anything Catholic or ecumenical at all. So here is what I got from Google Translate. How much we thank you for accepting our invitation to the special services, which during the nights of November 20th to 27th, we will perform for the honor and glory of the eternal God and to enjoy communion with each other and together pay adoration to our Savior. Every night from 6.45 p.m. onwards, you will be our special guest. From 6.45 p.m. to 7.30 p.m., we want we run evangelical movies, clearly biblical. And from 7.30 p.m. onwards, there will be our special services. The message of the Word of God will be in charge of the international evangelist of Spanish nationality, Reverend Dr. Alberto Rivera. So the only thing, I mean, I, I guess it is translated from Spanish. So, yeah, so this like this is just literally exactly what I got it when I put into Google Translate. I did not edit it at all because my Spanish knowledge is, does not qualify me to do so. Some of the words in there don't seem particularly Catholic. The only one in there that if I saw that it would jump out to me as Catholic would be communion. But uh, Catholics aren't is, the only ones communion? that did. it said enjoy. Oh, communion. enjoy communion yeah. with each other. Mm -mm. You don't think? No, if this were not, nah, if this were Catholics talking about eucharist it would say to receive eucharist with each other it would not be communion is not the word okay so that means so this is like let me find very... the word yeah the word in spanish is literally communion c-o-m-m-u-n-i-o-n so this is very protestant or uh or possibly like baptist or evangelical sounding language here is what jumped out yeah. to me so i trans that's like the inside page of this flyer i translated the first page it is a meeting of the sociedad los pescadores Iglesia Evangelica Cinco Calas, Guatemala City, November 20th to 27th, 1966. Sociedad Los Pescadores. Pescadores? I don't, I'm sorry, my accent is so bad. I apologize for the pain that I'm causing some of you out there. It translates to English as Fisherman's Club, which is an incredibly, incredibly common name for men's evangelical Protestant soul winning groups. Hmm. It's a fisherman's club meeting. So I looked up uh, uh, the church name. It translates to Five Streets Evangelical Church. Not Catholic. No, it's evangelical. Yeah. There is one piece of evidence on this flyer that totally convinces me that Alberto is a liar, though. And it's the address. Remember earlier, I told you if this meeting happened, it would absolutely have to be at Estadio Doroteo Guamaj Flores because that was the only stadium in Guatemala that would seat 50,000 people anywhere near the time frame. But what was the actual address to? The the actual address is listed as 19 Calais 258 Ciudad de Guatemala, Guatemala. So I looked up the address on Google Maps and it's about a kilometer from the stadium. So he wasn't talking to the I mean is is it like It's not in the stadium. It's a kilometer away from the stadium. It's in the same city. It's not at the stadium is it the kind of building that you could have like a conference at like so maybe he lied about the fifty thousand people or and it was like a thousand yeah I'm, I'm thinking it's like a hotel with like a conference room or is it just like mm -mm. no it took a little bit of digging because they didn't have street view but i did eventually find an image of the building it is currently occupied by primera iglesia centroamericana the inside of the church looks like it would seat about 150 people and that's generous it's just yep. complete there is no way that this flyer could be the flyer for the giant ecumenical conference 
There is no way. The, the existence of this flyer doesn't prove that the giant evangelical conference never happened. It does prove that it didn't happen in 1965 because Alberto was back preaching in Guatemala in 1966. But this flyer, like this is what Alberto presented as proof that this blows my mind and they just didn't research into it at all they didn't they just said that yep that looks good that nobody translated this nobody yeah and jack chick was living in southern california he's he's in rancho cucamonga la area you can find you could throw a rock you'll find somebody who meet who speaks spanish 10 feet in any direction of wherever you are at any time in southern california and they didn't think yeah. to just ask somebody, hey, is this, does this say what this guy says it says? Yeah. Can you just read this to me in English? I will pay you for your translation services. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just literally go up to almost anybody on the... Okay. So also, the other thing I'm thinking about here is that Christian evangelicals have a tendency to recount times that they've seen famous preachers in a similar manner to the way that people like you or I, Sadie, would talk about having seen our favorite bands. Like you're saying, oh, I saw Guns N' Roses on the Not In This Lifetime tour in Vegas. And it was all, like, we talk yeah. about that. And Christian evangelicals talk about, oh, I saw this pastor preach his XYZ sermon in uh, 2004, and it was at this church, and it was there with either a huge audience yeah. or it was a small audience, and I was in the front row. Or it's like, it's, it's like that. Yeah. If he had spoken to 50,000 people in Guatemala, certainly we would be able to dig up like one person who had seen him speak or had been at this conference and seen somebody else speak. So this flyer, assuming that it's real and there weren't any real big red flags, um, it does show that he preached in Guatemala, but it is the furthest thing from proof of this supposed 50,000 person mega conference. And the fact that Alberto really gave this flyer to David W. Daniels and said, oh, here, this is proof that it happened. I just got the year wrong. I told the truth about the Catholic Church to 50,000 people in 1966, not 1965. And then I got thrown in Catholic jail and got tortured until Jesus rescued me. The fact that Alberto presented this non-evidence is proof that something shady is going on here. Also, you know, he said he, he's very specific about the date that he left Catholicism in 1967. September 18th, 1967. Yeah. And so he would remember if he'd spent a year in between getting tortured and leaving Catholicism. Right. And even in the comic, he says it was like six months, I believe. So, I mean, it would make more sense for him to have said 1966 to begin with. The fact that he said 1965 to begin with, and he looked over the comic and he's just like, yep, this sounds about right timeline-wise. Like, he, he didn't even do yeah. his own research into constructing a narrative that makes sense. It's like, you know, when you watch TV and it's like, maybe it was a year between what happened last season and this season, or maybe it was like five minutes, who knows? It's, it's kind of that kind of thing, but this is like comic book time. This isn't real life time. So there's one last piece of evidence from You Don't Know Jack that I think we absolutely have to address. And it is an ID card from Spain in 1967. The ID card shows Alberto's face, his name, and he is in his photo on the card. He is wearing a priest collar. This is also presented as evidence for the veracity of Alberto's story in at least one of the comic books. I think this ID card is reprinted like, yeah, it's on the first page of Double Cross, like before we even get into the story. I mean, anybody can his wear a priest collar and have their picture taken. Yeah, but how did he like, how did he get it? His, his occupation 
occupation on the card, I think, is listed as bishop. The images in the comic book are not conveniently not quite clear enough to actually be able to read the whole ID card. <laughs> I guess scanners were not what they are now in 1980, so maybe we can not, you know, let them think that this is... Like, maybe we can give them a break on this. Yeah. So, Alberto claims that this ID was from right before he was allowed out of the country when he escaped from the asylum. The address on the card is in Barcelona, and the comic does claim that the asylum that the Jesuits put him in was in Barcelona, so this kind of lines up. The year lines up. It's an ID card from 1967. So Alberto, the funniest thing is that the excuse that he gives for like the excuse he gives for this he gives us totally unnecessary information he says well the church lied and said that i stole over a million dollars and left spain with a woman and i was never a priest so i guess he's trying mm. to get out of get out ahead over get out ahead of this um i found it's hard to know exactly what he was doing in 1967 i found one article that claims that he was working as the director of a protestant school in Barcelona and got fired and then he went to the Catholics and claimed he was being persecuted by the Protestants and then he like weaseled his way into getting a place to sleep in a monastery and while he was living at the monastery he stole the priest outfit and got the ID card made that's fantastic that's that completely tracks <laughs> that seems in, like an extremely plausible yeah story man what a hustler. it 100% makes sense there's just there i don't have actual proof i mean bob larson walks around with a priest collar and he's like because he thinks it looks cool you know right but like, like bob larson probably bought it online yeah there's the and and this particular claim is from a blog called bible based ministries uk and it's just like a wordpress blog it's a well written article but like i it's not proof that Rivera was never actually a priest. I mean, he, he could have just gone to Spirit Halloween and gotten a priest costume, gone to a tailor and said, hey, I'm a priest. I need some robes made. And like you can <laughs> right? like you can get a priest collar. You can get a priest costume if you want, like as a disguise. Yeah, that's like I, I, I'm seeing a picture of him dressed as a priest is not the thing that is like clearly that man is a priest. Like he could have been a stripper that's like shick was he's like, I'm a I'm dressed as a priest, but I'm actually like a, a stripper or something like he could, he could have um been like and cast as an extra in a movie. He could have like, there are so many reasons why he could have been wearing a priest costume and had his picture. Like that legit could have been right. a prop from a movie <clears throat> if he was in a movie or something. This is right. it's not evidence at all. So the ID card, yeah, especially like it's not it's not a digital ID card. It's not a real ID with like a driver's license number. It's not what we have now. And that's why I brought up my great grandmother's ID card earlier. Like that was um, my great grandmother died in 1968 or 1969, if I'm remembering correctly. That was her legal identification card with no picture, no confirmation of you just you go into the office, you tell them what your address is, you write it on a card. That's it. So if he managed to get a priest caller somehow, like stealing it from a monastery where he was staying, he could just go have an ID card made. And the people who made the ID cards really have no way of tracking that. So I would say this is okay evidence that he was in Spain. 
He was in Barcelona at some point in 1967, but that's about it. I mean, he could have been somewhere else entirely and just had a fake Spanish ID made. I would think that getting a real one might have been easier than getting a fake one in 1967 that's true you got you to think like like alberto is what was a grifter but he was a pretty lazy grifter so you have to think about like what would have been easier him getting a, a real one under false pretenses or going to the trouble to have a fake made yeah but also who knows what a, a spanish id card looks like if he's trying to pass off a grift on somebody, he could just be like, this is my ID card. It's like if you show me uh, like a driver's license from a different country, I'm going to be like, and say I'm like the bouncer at a bar and it's like a fake driver's license from a different country and you're a guy with an accent from that country. I'm like, sure, this is real. Clearly, I don't know what a, a Slovenian ID looks like. You sound like you're Slovenian. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, I don't know. The, uh, this, the, the ID card, I actually just found while you were talking a clearer image of it. It looks legit. Okay. But I, I, I would say I would accept this as proof that he was in Spain in 1967. Uh, June 19th, 1967 specifically is when this card was created. And he was wearing a priest collar, but we already know that he had a son by that time. So he clearly wasn't a priest at that right. time. Like, uh, actually, he had two sons before 1967. So he wasn't a priest. Like, he was married. This dude was, dude was married. He Like, he was yeah. not a priest. Clearly, he was not a priest. Well, he like, wasn't legally married because he said that God, you know, he's like, oh, God blessed our marriage. We don't actually have to get married, married. Yeah, but like if you're traveling internationally, you can just be like, well, it's common law marriage or whatever, like right. uh, like Kent Hovind does. And yeah, and there was another... No, oh, no, I'm wrong. He had one son previous to 1967 who had already died, and then he had a second son in 1968 uh, who mysteriously disappeared. Oh, it was like David Hiles? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so, uh, they, yeah, they were in Texas, and then... He had an ID card made in Spain in 1967, and then in 1968, he pops up in Tennessee, swindling a pro another Protestant denomination. And then after that, he was in Florida, and there are he was wanted by the police in Florida for the theft of a credit card and an automobile from church people that he was grifting in Florida. And then he had another son, and then that son just kind of falls off the face of the earth. We don't know what happened to him. And then in Washington State, he preached at revival meetings until the pastors in Washington got word from Florida that, hey, this guy is not for real. He's a grifter. Uh, and then a, and then people from Florida tried to get tried to come to Washington State to arrest him, but he got away. Uh, that, that's all from the Bible Based Ministries UK article. So I don't know, but that's evidently what happened. I mean, there's more evidence that we could probably dig up with about this guy if we had more time and we're gonna well, really yeah we'll see like what we have time to get into into part in part two we'll come back next week we're gonna dig into his supposed rescue of his sister from a convent in london we'll tell you a little bit more about what alberto was doing or allegedly doing between um 1968 and 1980 when his story broke through jack chick but we've also done some really interesting work tracking down where these conspiracy theories came from like if alberto is making this all up what gave him the idea and uh it's fascinating and i'm extremely excited to tell you about it the the conspiracy that he claims is going on with the vatican is like 
It's it. I mean, it's crazy, but I can't wait for that. Um, and I can't wait to talk to you guys again next week. Um, once again, if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, make sure you join our Patreon where we have an extended version of today's episode. Um, you can join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Uh, you can join our uh, subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus social media. Oh, you can follow the podcast on um, Facebook and Instagram and threads now because uh, we're on threads. Oh, we have threads now. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you just like go into your Instagram and say, I want to be on threads and it'll automatically move you over to threads. And like everybody who you're following on Instagram, you'll follow them on threads as well. If they're on threads, it's like super easy. Yeah. I don't want to do, I don't want to do threads because I've heard that if you want to delete your threads account, you also delete your Instagram. And I'm just not jazzed about the idea of downloading a new social media that I can't get rid of without getting rid of a social media that I actually value. Oh, Okay, that's fair. I mean, they'll probably fix that eventually. I mean, um, I'll probably end up on threads because I said the same thing about TikTok and now I will never leave TikTok until somebody bans it. Yeah. Well, and, and Twitter is like on that uh, ocean gate, whatever thing. It's, it's <laughs> I mean, it's going down and it's getting crushed. Um, but anyway, we're on threads. If you follow us on Instagram, you can follow the link to our threads, but it's just leaving Eden podcast. You can... Uh, follow us on you can follow me on facebook and instagram and threads i guess at g-a-v-r-i-e-l-h-a-c-o-h-e-n sadie your socials you can follow me on instagram at sadie carpenter music on twitter at hell yeah sadie and on tiktok at sadie carpenter one Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in you guys have a great day bye-bye